This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome once again to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I am an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. I'm honored today to be joined by Richard Edelaine. Dr. Edelaine is a professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico and has had a long and storied career as one of the preeminent historians of the American West. He's written and edited over 60 volumes. He's published dozens of articles and accumulated several prizes along the way, including a Pulitzer nomination for his book, The American West, A 20th Century History. And today we'll be discussing his new book, Thunder in the West, The Life and Legacy of Billy the Kid, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Dick. Thank you. Thank you. My privilege. I always like to begin my interviews by hearing a bit about the author. So tell us about your background and specifically how you got interested in history and the history of the West in particular. In uh, the outbacks of uh, eastern Washington, we lived on a sheep ranch 20 miles from the nearest town. And uh, my father was a Basque immigrant. Uh, that's the area between France and Spain. So I grew up really uh, distant from uh, the no- nearest person was 10 miles away. So I was really in that outbacks of the West. And because uh, we were there, and we did a lot of physical work. I went to a, a, a little school about uh, five miles away from the ranch. There, uh, when I finished there on the fourth grade, my last year there, there were only five students in the class, in the whole school for that matter. And I had a wonderful teacher there who taught me that both Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee were very good people. Uh, he didn't, uh, she didn't, uh, decide between the North and the South, and we had a wonderful book that we were uh, teaching and reading called Singing Wheels, and it was about the West. So both in the place where I was being raised, in that school, that really sort of introduced me to the rural West. Then I went off to college at Northwest Nazarene College in Nampa, Idaho, church-related school, and I had a wonderful teacher who was finishing up his doctorate. And he taught me really to think analytically about the West. So I wasn't doing just an adventure and dramatics, but what do you think about this book? How, how, how strong is this book? So I wrote book reviews that taught me how to think analytically. And then I went off to graduate school at the University of Oregon, and there I had a leading Western historian by the name of Earl Pomeroy. And he also was an analytical historian. 
So by the time I finished graduate school, I had taken my Western background and had married it to an academic analytical background. So that's the kind of West I had been introduced to by the time I finished my doctorate in 1966. And what about the, 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 the kind of stories of the American West, the stories of heroes and villains that so many people are familiar with? What brought you to the topic of this book, for instance? What made you want to write about someone like Billy the Kid as a book topic? Well, I arrived in uh, New Mexico in uh, 1979, so I've been uh, teaching about 13 years. And it didn't take very long for them to, the students to say, or my colleagues to say, or the general audiences in Albuquerque, New Mexico, what do you think about Billy the Kid? Well, he was the most written about New Mexico. So you, you, you had to answer that question, and I didn't know much about him. Uh, the, the Old West, the Wild West, really wasn't something I had been much introduced to. Uh, the kind of books, that Steve, that I had uh, read as a kid growing up were the Kids classics, the Hardy Boys, uh, Nancy Drew, uh, some sports stories, and gradually introduced to the West. And now I get back to Billy the Kid. Well, also, at the end of about 13 years, I had established myself. I was a full professor. I could write anything I wanted. So I, I thought, well, I want to write for the general public. I want to write for my wife and my daughter. I want to write a book that would interest them. So I looked around and I saw all the kinds of books that had been done and the only character that didn't have a biography was Calamity Jane. So I did a book on Calamity Jane and a second book called A Reader's Guide to Calamity Jane. And then I thought a little bit later, well, I'll do the same on Billy the Kid. So I could put together what I had been doing with what was happening in New Mexico and tell the story. Well. That's 1979. This book doesn't come out till 2020. So <laughs> there was almost a 40-year gap there. I was doing other things, in part because an awful lot of academic colleagues did not think that Billy could, Billy the Kid could ever be treated in an, an academic monograph. They thought that you would be a John Wayne kind of romantic. And so I, I, I was hesitant about that until... I'd established, I thought, myself as a historian, and then I began to write about the, the Old West, but to do an academic book on the Old West. Well, and one of the ways that I feel like you, you kind of square that circle between a book that is at once both academically rigorous, but also entertaining, is you spend a good amount of time talking about uh, the con the context of, of, of Billy's life and where he is growing up and where he is uh, spending his time and where he's making a name for himself. Um, and I want to I find out about context a bit in a moment, but before we get into that, let's just start with the basics of the factual Billy the Kid. Um, as you say in the book, the details of his childhood are a little shrouded in mystery, but you try to reveal what we do know about his early years. So what do we think we know about his birth and about his upbringing? You know, the, the, the same challenges for Billy the Kid are for uh, some of our leading people. We don't know very much about the early years of George Washington and even less about Abraham Lincoln. So that Abraham Lincoln is almost 20 years of age before we know very much about him. And that so often happens if somebody really wasn't in the headlines early on and then they go into the headlines, people have the headline stories but quite often they have to do a lot of digging. I'll give you an example of something else I'm doing. I'm comparing Billy the Kid 
with a New Zealand folk hero by the name of Jock McKenzie. Jock McKenzie probably lived to be 50, 60 years old. We only know 10 months of his life. So <laughs> there, there is Billy the Kid even condensed down. Yeah. So when I studied Billy the Kid, I realized it wouldn't bother me too much because nobody had found any new information until he was in the middle of his teens and that we only knew five or six years of his life. Well, that, that was like some of our other major characters. So it didn't bother me too much that there wasn't very much on the early part of his life. And Steve, there was another thing I set out to do with the book. And this sort of appeals to one side of the people like to read about the West, and it doesn't appeal to them on the other guard. The first half of Billy the Kid is that rather straightforward biographical story, all right? I'm convinced that what actually happened and what we say about what happened is sometimes different, mm -hmm. so that we can trace all the facts of Billy the Kid's life, but then realize that people who begin to write about him in 1881, right up until now, so 140 years, we've gone through all of these changes. I'll give one example. We don't think the same about Native Americans now as we did as a boy when I was growing up, and we used the word savages. Well, we know that the times, the way we've reacted to Indians is quite different. That means when we write about the past, we quite often take the present and superpose it on the past. Mm -hmm. The same thing happened to Billy the Kid, that so often early on, people writing in the 20s took the 20s and wrote about Billy the Kid. The people writing in the 1950s took the Billy the Kid. And then you get to the end of the 20th century, and Young Guns is straight out of Hollywood, and it's a young group of people making a movie which is not very realistic, but it is 1990s point of view about Billy the Kid. So mm -hmm. we take the present and we superimpose it on the past. That's what the second half of that book is about. Right. That has not appealed much to people in love with the Old West. They stop with the biographical part. They, they're not much interested in that second half. Academics are more interested in the second half than they are the first half. So I'm caught between the, those two groups. The, 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 the first half, when people have reviewed this book, uh, if they are sort of generalists, they like the first half. And then they'll say, but in the second half, Edeline goes astray. <laughs> well, well here, here's the question for you then, Dick. Which half was more fun to write, the first half or the second half? I think probably telling the story uh, that I wanted to tell a narrative story in the first part, that was very interesting to me, mm -hmm. but I felt like I was building new ground in the second half. So narrative, dra dramatic history in the first half, that's that was pleasing because I set out to try to write a book that would appeal to the general audience. Mm -hmm. But I also tried to do a book uh, that would, in fact, appeal to people who are interested in historiography. So my wife and daughter in the first half, maybe my colleagues in the second. Well, I, I personally enjoyed both halves, so I'll, I'll split the difference there myself. Let, okay. Let's get into the story of Billy's life. What do we know about his birth and his early, early years, as you describe it in the book? Yeah, almost nothing. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example of this. His name is not in print until he is, you know, uh, in the beginning part of his teens. So... All the research that has been done since he was born, we think, in 1859, 
So all the research that's been done in this 150 years or so since then, no one has been able to find out where he was born for sure. So people think it's in New York City, they think it's in 1859, but they don't know for sure. The very first fact we know is that his mom, Catherine, is located in Indianapolis, and he's, you know, not quite teens yet. And then it isn't until his his uh, stepfather and his mom were uh, married in Santa Fe uh, in the middle 1870s that he first is put into print. Uh, we don't even know who his biological father was. We know a lot, quite a bit about his mother, who was a wonderful person, and Billy was quite attached to her. So the early part of Billy's life is really really attached to his mom. Mm -hmm. And once she dies, when they've moved to to, uh, to uh, southern New Mexico, really his life changed. The death of his mom was the dividing point in his life. So back to your early question, almost nothing about yeah. his early life. Do we know what brought him and his family to the Southwest, why they ended up in New Mexico territory? I would say that there are probably two motivations. Uh, they didn't say it. But uh, I think the historian looking at it, the biographer looking at it would say, <coughs> Catherine uh, had TB, mm -hmm. and uh, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, it was it was advised to her that she get into a warmer, drier climate, and so they moved from the Midwest and uh, actually ended up in Denver, and then came down to Santa Fe, and probably that would have been okay for her, but her person that she married, William Antrim, uh, wanted to make it a, a big strike. He wanted to make it in in uh, mining. And it, they had just opened up in the area near Silver City. And so he was motivated by that. She was motivated by health concerns. So, so those were probably the true drawing aspects of the of the family moving down, the Antrim family moving to Silver City. And I know that we don't know much about Billy's early life, but is there any hint to what he was like prior to becoming the infamous Billy the Kid when he was growing up in New Mexico Territory? And what sort of uh, young person he was at the time? Are there other people that talk about him or any reminiscences of what he was like when he was younger? The first uh, come when he's in Silver City, so he's uh, in his middle teens, and there were quite a few people uh, who were about the ages he, he was, but uh, they lived well past his 21 years of age. And so there are an awful lot of newspaper and memoir reports about him. And they make a distinction between what he was like before his mom died and afterwards, in part because uh, mom established a, a nice home uh, and brought people in because stepfather was gone quite a bit. And then in the last about six months of her life, she was in bed and then died in the, in the fall after they'd been there only about, oh, about 15 months or so. And then he begins to run with the wrong crowd. And he isn't very good at going to school after that. Well, mom watched those things very carefully. Stepfather and people decide what they're going to say about William Antrim. I'm not negative about William Antrim. I would say, he wasn't much interested in being a stepfather to those two boys. But I don't think he was mean to them. I don't think he drove them out of out of the house. But he just wasn't around very much. And so that meant when Catherine died, they didn't have very much for people looking after them 
and Billy begins, and he does this throughout his life. He falls in with somebody who's older than he and follows in their steps until maybe the last two, three years of his life when he's leading, but in the in Silver City and when he's over in Arizona, an older guy sort of captures Billy, and Billy gets into things that he shouldn't have gotten into. But the the memories of about I'd say half a dozen guys uh, who knew him in Silver City said he was just like most other guys. And then when he began to follow that other guy, he separated themselves from the schoolboys. So they didn't say very much about him then. But they said he was just like uh, uh, most of the people. And the, here was another reference, that he got along really well with Hispanics. Mm -hmm. And he learned how to speak Spanish fluently. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the context within which all of this story is taking place. What is the Southwest like in the 1870s and the 1880s, specifically in the context of, of Lincoln County, New Mexico territory? Because this is the place where a lot of this story is going to take place, and it's a place that's undergoing some fair amount of upheaval when young Billy arrives and begins to grow up. It begins to stray from the path a little bit. So what, what is this place like? Yeah, Lincoln County is doubly isolated. Uh, New Mexico generally, after the uh, Mexican War uh, finished uh, and this separate settlement was made, not very many non-New Mexicans, non-Native Americans, non-Hispanics, or they would have used the word Mexicans, non-Mexicans moved into the area. When they did, they came to Santa Fe and gradually, especially after the railroad came into to Albuquerque. Well, uh, Lincoln County, not only is New Mexico separate from really what's happening, if you think about what, what's happening in California, what's happening in Oregon, that wasn't happening in New Mexico. And Lincoln County is even more separated because there are almost no people moving into that area, except there were a few ranchers. There were a few Texans, for example, who moved into that area. And there were a few other people, and they dominated. And so what happened is you had the predominant population as being Mexican, but it was dominated by a few non-Mexicans. And so when Billy arrives there, that conflict between the non-Mexicans and the Mexicans is very much there. And now the non-New Mexicans are also split and one person put it this way, that the Lincoln County War was over money. And what you had is the conflict between uh, a lawyer and a businessman and two other businessmen. That, that, that's very much the, the conflict that develops in Lincoln County, separate from Santa Fe. And what you'll see a little bit later is the domination of Santa Fe and what's called the Santa Fe Ring. So uh, it's dominated for, by Santa Fe, but true kind of isolation. So the things are happening on the main street, that's true, but the domination telling them what they should do is still coming from Santa Fe. Well, let's put Billy into this context. If this Lincoln, okay. if this Lincoln County War is, as you say, you know, between people like businessmen and, and powerful figures, how does Billy get wrapped up in all of this? What part does he play and how does he enter into this, this kind of world of, of, of violence and upheaval? Uh, you know, when people do the history of immigration, they talk about push and pull. Yeah. And uh, Billy left Silver City because he got into trouble. He went to Arizona. 
even worse there. He was involved in his first killing, and he killed some man. Uh, some people say in self-defense. I don't say that because the man that he killed didn't have a gun. But Billy unwisely pulled a gun and killed him while he had to get out of there. So he's pushed out of Arizona because he's afraid he's going to be taken into court for a murder. And he's heard that if he goes over to uh, New Mexico, especially to the eastern part. See, he had been in Silver City, that's the western part, but he had heard in the eastern part, so that'd be about 200 to 250 miles away on the east, the southeastern part, that they were hiring cowboys or people to work on ranches. So he's pulled to that idea. So uh, from he leaves in August of 77, and with about two months later, he's in Lincoln uh, County, and he doesn't have any contacts. So he bounces around there, uh, and he, he offers himself. He, he, uh, we have a man by the name of John Chisholm, who's the biggest landowner, Texan, who's expanded into uh, New Mexico, and he won't hire Billy. Well, Billy sort of bounces around again, and then an Englishman, a man by the name of Tunstall, hires him. Now, this is interesting. Tunstall's an Englishman. Billy is growing up, has grown up in Irish backgrounds. In other places in the West, there was tension between the Irish and the English. But in this case, the two Irishmen, the, the two people that were known as the House, Murphy and Dolan, they were Irish. So Billy has his main conflicts with other Irishmen, and he begins to work with Tunstall. And two months after that, Tunstall is shot. And some people say in February of 1870, that's the first shot of the Lincoln County War. Well, Billy loves that Tunstall. And some people say Tunstall's a father figure, but he's only about five or six years older. He's about 23 or 24, and by this time Billy is in his late teens. So he liked him, and Tunstall gave him a job, gave him a sort of see what he could do. And he dreamed of getting his own land. So there was the dream and what happens, the nightmare of Tunstall being killing, mm -hmm. being killed, and that sort of brings nightmare to Billy's life. Let's move forward a bit to the year of 1878, because that's really a critical year in Billy's life. And it's this year when exactly. he, he commits some of his most notorious deeds, and he, yep. get, he gets even more enmeshed. He sinks even deeper into this morass of the Lincoln County War and the events surrounding it. So what happens in 1878? Walk us through this year and these events. There's where you... Uh, I use the word later on, Steve, that... Billy is a bifurcated, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the yeah. positive and the negative. And what you see entering uh, 1878 is more the positive side. He's gone to work for Tunstall. He's working with a rancher. It seems to be working. And then the shot, and Tunstall's killed. Now, the next words I use are hearsay. We don't know for sure, but it is said that Billy comes to the funeral of Tunstall and says, I'll get some of these guys before I'm gone. So what, if that's true, then you see Billy already the negative side of him coming out. He's not going to allow uh, the, the sheriff and the other people to make decisions. He's going to get them. He's going to sort of uh, take the law into his own hands. Well, uh, he's not yet. Uh, he's not yet a leader. He's a follower. And there are quite a few people that join together in what's called the regulators. And the regulars are extra legal. 
they are doing things that the reason they're doing these things is because they feel that the sheriff is too positive for the opposition, the opposition being the, the Murphy Dalton, the House group. So they're going to do, so, and they think those are the people that killed Tunstall, and there's pretty good evidence for that, and that the sheriff is in cahoots. So the regulators, and Billy now is a follower of the regulators, begin to march around, going to get uh, their vengeance on the killers. And very soon they do. Within just a few weeks, they're involved in the killing of a couple of the men that were involved in the killing of Tunstall. And then, really, uh, and it, we don't know for sure, but Billy was probably involved in the shooting of those two men, uh, but we can't say that Billy actually did it. But on April Fool's Day, uh, Billy and three or four other guys are in a corral, and the sheriff goes by, and they shoot him and one of his deputies. His name is William Brady, the sheriff. And really, Billy is involved really in a, a murder, and we know really that he has been involved in the murder. Whether his bullet brought down the sheriff, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then, about a month later, they're down at a, a station not too far from there, and another man is killed. So Billy then, in about a three-month period, is involved in three killings. We don't know him to be the killer of those, but that means he's moved in that direction. Well, it gets worse and worse because it's, the sheriff has been killed, and so you've got these two groups, Murphy Dolan on one side and the regulators, and uh, Alex McSween, the lawyer, uh, is on the side, and he tends to be the supporter of the Tunstalls. So Billy is on that side, and then all hell breaks loose in July. And that's called the Great Killing or the Five-Day Killing. And really, they march into town, the two opposition groups. And at first, it looks like that the regulators and the McSweens, they're at the McSween house in Lincoln. And it looks like they're going to win. And then, not too far away, is uh, a fort. And the man who's at the fort tends to be more supportive of the house people than of the McSween Billy regulator side. And he sends in troops. And his troops are supporters of the opposition. So the opposition then, not with the support, but at least the, the soldiers looking on, they set fire to the McSween house. And it gradually burns from room to room to room. And then there is uh, the escape that late that night. And that's that, that image, when Billy is able to escape that fire, really puts him into the news. Mm -hmm. If Billy was known kind of locally, we, we get some almost national news so that Billy the Kid, although we don't call him Billy the Kid yet, that's not used, but by escaping, and by the way, McSween is killed there, so that means that the leaders of the regulators have been killed outside. So that would be after July of 1870, Billy now becomes a leader. So the events of 1870 push Billy from being a follower loyal of Tunstall through a series of killings and then to his becoming a leader of, of a bunch of thieves yeah. in the last three years of his life.
And he spends those years from uh, uh, 1878 into really 1881 or so drifting from, from place to place. What does he spend his time during these years, as you say, when he is a leader? What does he spend his time doing? And how, when he's on this path, does he end up crossing uh, crossing lines, crossing paths with uh, Pat Garrett, who, who will, of course, play a large role in his life to come? The Pat Garrett story will come late in those three years. Uh, but Billy becomes a thief, and mm-hmm. he becomes a man who steals in New Mexico, especially horses, taking them over to the part of Texas called the Panhandle, which was a large ranching area, and they always needed horses. So Billy knew if he stole horses, and quite often he would take them from the Chisholm Big Ranch and take them over to the Texas place and sell them there. Or he would steal cattle in uh, the panhandle and take them over to a friendly butcher who would butcher them and then sell them to Indians or to the military. So back and forth, back and forth. Now, Billy dreamed of getting a couple of other guys and getting some land, but he was so outside law and order, he didn't have any support from the legal officials to do anything that was legal. So what you see is a, a continuous three years of which he's outside the law, stealing horses and cattle, going back and forth between Texas and New Mexico. And his reputation as a thief is growing more and more. It's in the, all over the Santa Fe newspapers and even in some regional Western newspapers. So then how does Pat Garrett come into the picture? I guess what I'm asking is... Okay, Pat, well, no, go by all means. in uh, Texas. Yeah. And, uh, and he came... Uh, overlooking for work. There, there had been a killing, a controversial killing that he was involved in, and probably that was the thing that sent him out, and he had heard that there were job possibilities. He came to Fort Sumner. Fort Sumner would be the sort of second home for Billy after Lincoln, and uh, they meet there. Now, here, here's some division among historians. Some historians say they were good friends. I would say they just knew one another. And Pat Garrett, for a while, was a, a a man who served drinks at one of the taverns. So Billy knew him there, and Billy hung out at the taverns. He was a non-drinker himself, but he would play cards and hang out with the people. And so he met Pat Garrett that way. With the increasing difficulties, and quite often it was pointed toward Billy, there was an attempt by some of the big ranchers, including Chisholm, Get somebody into the the sheriff of Lincoln County that will go after Billy the Kid and people like him. Well, Pat Garrett is elected, but even before he would take over, which would have been the 1st of January of 1881, he begins to go after Billy because he sees Billy and he starts in about November. So even before, about two months before he was to be legally the sheriff, the sheriff was going to be was not elected, Pat Garrett beat him, and Pat Garrett was going to take over legally, he allows Pat Garrett to go after Billy the Kid. So it starts in November, Mm -hmm. and by December, he he has captured Billy. And then to to end the, the, the factual part of Billy's life, how does he meet his downfall? How does his tragically short life meet its end point? He's uh, captured. Uh, they take him to uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico, and then over to Santa Fe. And uh, by the way, Lou Wallace, the governor, had promised that if Billy would testify in a couple court cases, he would pardon him. 
Uh, Billy did what he was asked to do, but Wallace didn't keep his uh, promise. And there was probably understanding that Wallace realized that he had made the promise, but then he felt he had second thoughts about it. So he, if Billy was in jail in uh, Santa Fe. He wrote about five or six letters to Wallace. Wallace was too busy doing Ben-Hur, his novel, that was a bestseller, and so he didn't pay attention to Billy. So Billy then is taken by train down to Mesilla, New Mexico, and he's uh, uh, declared guilty of the only person shooting uh, the sheriff back on uh, New Year's, uh, on uh, April Fool, which was, you know, not fair. But the other people weren't around and they hadn't captured them. So he's declared guilty and they're going to hang him, take him back to Lincoln. And Pat Garrett, who's the sheriff, you had to raise your own monies. So he was out raising money and Billy escapes. That's the second thing that brings Billy into sensation. First, escaping the burning McSween house in uh, July of 1878. And now in April of 1881, he escapes. He kills two men. He kills two of Pat Garrett's. Uh, attendants, lieutenants. One he didn't want to kill. The other he was sort of happy to kill. He was uh, a man who had given Billy all kinds of headaches. So there are the second and third killings uh, of, of Billy. Actually, one that ha occurred earlier in the year in a tavern shootout. So those were the third and fourth killings of Billy. So we know that he himself, by himself, killed four men and was involved in the shootings of others. Mm -hmm. He escapes, and this tells you a lot about Billy. He's encouraged by some of his friends. He had a lot of Hispanic friends, and they said, get out, get out of Dodge, you know, go to Mexico. And he said, what would I do there? I don't have any money. Well, he also had a girlfriend. Now, historians differ on this. I say it was Paulita Maxwell. The Maxwells were the most, uh, the richest uh, landowners in Fort Sumner. And they had bought an, an old fort there and made it into their home. And that's where Paulita was. And he makes his way gradually, escapes in, in April, and his death is going to come in July. He hangs out sort of in and around Fort Sumner. And Pat Garrett waits a little bit, and then he begins to contact people. Is Billy around? Is Billy around? And here again, historians disagree. Some people say he got a letter saying, you need to come to Fort Sumner. Billy's been hanging around. Well, on the evening of July 14th, uh, Billy comes into town. Does he come to see Paulita? There was another married lady that he hung out some, Celsta Gutierrez, and maybe had a relationship. Anyway, he heads over because he's heard that they are going to, uh, there's an animal there that Pete Maxwell, that's Paulita's older brother, and he has inherited the ranch. His dad has died. And that he's killed a, an animal, so Billy wants to go over and cut off a couple of pieces of meat, bring it back, and have it cooked for his supper. Well, when he gets there, there are two lawmen standing outside. Uh, and he tries to sort of say a little bit to them, and he realizes this is a scary thing. So what he does is he backs away quickly and goes into Pete Maxwell's bedroom, which is on the corner. Well, he doesn't realize that Pat Garrett has gone inside and is waiting there, talking to Pete Maxwell, asking, have you seen Billy? And when Billy goes bouncing in there, he kind of thinks that there's somebody there, but he's, he says, quien es, quien es, in Spanish, who is it, who is it? And Pat Garrett shoots twice, one of the 
first bullet hits Billy right in the chest. The other goes flying by. And uh, Pete Maxwell says to him, you killed the wrong guy. You killed the wrong guy. And uh, Garrett says, I think it's the right guy. He comes zipping out, and so does Maxwell. And they they don't go back in for a little while. And then they go back in, and Billy's body is there. Now, here's the controversy that a lot of people want to follow, uh, Stephen. Mm -hmm. They want to say that he didn't kill uh, Billy the Kid, that Cat, Pat Garrett killed another guy. But here's the evidence. The next day, they put Billy's body on uh, expose, and uh, we have the knowledge that over 100 people went by to see his body. They would have said something if it wasn't the Billy the Kid that they knew. But, you know, the, the rumor of the Texas people is that uh, Billy uh, was got got free and lived till, uh, oh, say, about 1950 or so over in Hixico, Texas, H-I-X-C-O, uh, I think it's pronounced, spelled. And the evidence for that, and, and by the way, there have been about 15 to 20 books with that point of view. There's another man in New Mexico who claimed to be Billy the Kid. Hmm. I think the evidence is very clear. This was Billy the Kid, and he was buried the next day in the cemetery there in Fort Sumner. Sort of a Wild West version of Elvis not being dead, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know that, that uh, Kennedy wasn't killed, <laughs> right. and Hitler wasn't killed. Right. Long, yeah. Well, yeah. They, yeah. They, the evidence is pretty much that he, he was the person. But, I mean, all, all the people that we just mentioned, they're all legendary figures in, in yeah. American myth or in, in kind of world world historical legend and mythos. So Billy operates in the same way. So that's, that's the life story of Billy the Kid. But Billy's yeah. story does not end with his life. His legend really begins coterminously with, his, with his, his, his life. So when do people start telling stories about this real person? Uh, what, where, what does, where does his legend begin? Yeah. History backwards. It isn't until December or January of the last six to eight months of his life that he's known as Billy the Kid. Right. There was a journalist in Santa Fe who put it all together. Well, he was called Billy. It was called the Kid, but they, it wasn't Billy the Kid. So it's an intriguing that while we use that entirely, mm -hmm. it wasn't until the last six eight months, and he had all those other names that he used, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, when, when uh, I, I don't know the motivation, but I would imagine Pat Garrett wants to tell the truth, because there were some things, you know, that there were an awful lot of people like Billy the Kid, and so they were very angry, and the way in which, you know, Billy didn't get a chance to defend himself, and in the dark of the night, uh, uh, Pat shoots him. Well, for a while, it looks like people are going to come after Pat. So I think maybe he wanted to tell his story. Well, he wasn't a writer. So Ash uh, Upson uh, was a journalist friend of his. So he said he'd help. And uh, so Billy's killed in July. In the spring of 82, the true life of Billy the Kid, authored by Pat Garrett, comes out. And they don't have any information. <laughs> I mean, they were worse off than we because they didn't seem to have any information before the last three or four years of Billy's life. So Ash Abbasman, who was a, uh, an imaginative journalist, uh, blew a lot of hot, hot stories that there's no evidence for that 
Billy was in Mexico and he did this and he did that. And uh, most historians would say nonsense. But the last part is from the perspective of Pat Garrett. So he begins to tell us a little bit. Now, here's an interesting thing. Most of the stuff that appeared in newspapers and in the first writings treated Billy negatively. You know, that mm -hmm. he's, uh, the, for example, dime novels came out right around that time, one or two before he was killed and right afterwards, and they were almost always negative. But in the Pat Garrett story, he is an outlaw. He is a person who's killed people, but he was also a people that people enjoyed, and he had a lot of good friends. Uh, Pat Garrett didn't say much about how friendly he was with Hispanics and with women, but those were people that were good friends of Billy's. It takes quite a while for that to change, and that doesn't change until the 1920s. So if you want to look at that almost 30-year period from the 1882 first book to uh, the, uh, the saga of Billy the Kid, which Walter Noble Burns does in the 1920s, and he turns to saying Billy is primarily positive, pri primarily a good guy, and that the negative things were primarily on the opposite side, not Billy the Kid. He admits that Billy killed people, but he was also a good guy, and you need to understand that. Now, did he go as far as to say Billy's a hero? Sometimes he kind of did, but he also thought that Pat Garrett was a hero. He said Billy was the Old West and Pat Garrett was the New West. Hmm. Well, what the Pat Garrett story did is it dominated sort of what people did. It was the source. From the 1920s till about the 1950s, Walter Noble Burns' book is kind of the source. So you got, you got a 25-year period for Pat Garrett, about a 30-year period for Walter Noble Burns, and then in the 50s and 60s it will change again. And as you put, you put in the book that that Billy is reborn in the 1920s, uh, and part of yeah, that yeah. part of that rebirth is also that Billy starts to appear on film as well as in novels in the mid 20th yeah. century. So, can you talk a bit about film portrayals of Billy the Kid and how they have kind of added or changed his legend? Okay, let me put it in context, Steve. Here's a book that you need to write. You need to write <laughs> how the 1920s changed how we thought about the American West. Mm -hmm. The first biographies, the first biographies of Clammy Jane, of Billy the Kid, except for the Pat Garrett, and for some of the Jesse James and some of the Native Americans, came out in the 1920s. They were mainly written by journalists, not by the kinds of things we did for our doctoral dissertation, where we spent all of our time looking at the archives. They wrote popular histories. All right, that was one thing. The most popular genre of movies in the 1920s were westerns. More westerns were made than any other kind. Now remember, these are the silence. It's not until 1929 that you get the talkies. So in biography, who's the best-selling novelist? Zane Gray. So you have in literature and in biography and in movies this Great upsurge of interest in the 1920s. Billy the Kid is reborn in the 20s because he's a part of this reborning of the magic Old West. And is it around this time that he starts to appear on film as well? Because there's a couple film adaptations of the Billy the Kid story that matter a great deal here as well. Yeah, 
1929, yeah. uh, and 1930, 1931, uh, and they weren't all positive, but uh, they they generally were positive. And then uh, there's a whole host of them that come out in the 40s mm-hmm. by a production series. There were about uh, I think over a dozen, and he, there he is a genuine good guy. He's a law and order kind of guy, and. As one historian has said, well, they didn't tell the truth, but what they did is they made Billy into a hero. And what that meant is that was generally happening. The positive side of Billy was coming out, and those movies helped to to do that. So in the 1920s, Reborn, gradually uh, uh, sort of ascending into uh, sort of hero worship, at least in that positive very direction. And it hits a high point in the in the fifties. And where does Billy's status stand by the time the twentieth century ends? And then looking forward to today, where do you think he stands in popular culture today? Do we still think about Billy the Kid in in American society today? Does he still kind of have it's this folk hero status? I've talked quite a bit about that, Stephen. Uh, almost nothing has been written in the last twenty twenty five years mm-hmm. on Billy Kid. It doesn't mean that books haven't been written. It's just not much. And if you think of movies, Young Guns were made in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and they are probably still the last thing. Man, that's 30 years ago, and what it suggests. And uh, uh, I, I would say that uh, two, two people uh, wrote about Billy, uh, Frederick Nolan, an Englishman, and it's intriguing, Stephen, we need to say this. He does almost all of his research from England. Hmm. And uh, he started out by doing Tunstall because Tunstall had come from London, but then he fell in love with a with a Lincoln County story. Did almost all of his research. He wrote three or four very popular books. And uh, Robert Utley, an American sort of uh, leader in uh, the Old West stories, those two wrote very important books in the 1970s, 1980s, and into the 1990s. Those are still sort of the important books. Now, I'd like to think that maybe Edeline books in 2020 are, are going to help. Now, I'm going to tell you an interesting story. Later this year, there will be a 500-page biography of Billy the Kid written by a man from Australia by the name of James Mills. Hmm. Now, the reason I know all about it is I was a reader of the manuscript. And it's it might be the best book uh, that's been done. Now... Here, again, he's never been to Lincoln County. Hmm. He's never been to the United States. And it's a very good book. And he does a very good job of describing something he's never seen. So maybe Billy is coming back on the scene. But what happened is the Utley and the Nolan books and the Young Guns uh, movies lasted well into the 20th century. Then about 2020, 21, 22 we're now getting maybe an upsurge of interest again in Billy the Kid. So even if there has been this this gap of a couple decades where, where interest in Billy lagged, that still is a good 120, 130 or so years when interest was, was pretty sustained. Why do you think Billy the Kid had such a long cultural legacy? Why this constant appeal of this story, do you think? Yeah, I've thought a lot about that, and uh, youth... First of all, uh, you know, he's only 21 years old. He, he, he's, he's sort of out of bounds in his life. It's sort of like the early period of Jesse James. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, Custer's not very old when he's 
and gone. Uh, you know, Billy the Kid, Jesse James, and Custer are the three most written about Old West characters. And I think the native stories are, are different. You can't put them in the same cultural context. And when you think of uh, Wild Bill and when you think of Wyatt Earp, they're later in life and they live longer in their lives except Wild Bill. But Billy dies young. And so there's this romantic story about him as a young person. He's a never-stop person, always on the run. Plus, you know, we, uh, this uh, New Zealand guy that I'm writing about, Jock McKenzie, he's seen as a folk hero, and he was a sheep stealer. Now, he didn't kill people. But how, a sheep thief, we didn't have those in the United States. How do you make him into a hero? Well, in many ways, those characters thumb their nose at too much central government. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Billy was a person who said to the Santa Fe ring, oh, go peddle your papers. You know, I'm going to do it my way. And a lot of people like that. Um, I don't want to talk about contemporary politics, but there's a lot of tradition in American politics which says we have too much domination from the central government, too sure. much from the power throne. Yeah. So the Billy the Kid were challenge, was a challenge to that, and a lot of people identified with that. Yeah. And they saw, they saw Jesse James doing the same thing. And for Custer, because he was a challenger of Native Americans, they saw that as his kind of challenge. So they were the challenge of some status quo, I think. I think that. So youth, challenger of the status quo, and then I think a lot of people like Billy because he was good friends with Hispanics, and he proved that he could do that. And there were an awful lot of people. Stephen, there's a phrase in Southwestern history. He's a man you can ride the river with. Hmm. He's a man you can ride the river with. And that was a phrase that they could have used for Billy Kidd. I don't remember if it was ever used for him, but what they meant is a kind of guy you enjoyed being around. And there were an awful lot of people who felt that way. Yeah. Plus, Billy was very friendly uh, in one way with older women, and they saw him as a kind of son. He was uh, he had very good friendships with adult women there in the in the Silver City area. He had also friendships with younger women in a different way. But he was able to communicate with women in a different sort of way than some uh, Wild West characters did. So there are three or four reasons why I think youth. Never stop, dramatic, romanticism, uh, reaching out to Hispanics and to women. And then the the last question that I like to ask my guests about the books that they come on the show to talk about is is sort of a, a thirty thousand foot view. If if there if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book understanding or thinking about or having a different perspective on, what do you think that might be for this book? Uh, I hope it's the thing that I suggested to you earlier, that they, these are not simplistic stories. Yeah. And sometimes the Wild West or Old West is too dramatic and romantic. It's too sort of John Wayne-ish, uh, Zane Gray-ish, Louis Lamour-ish. And uh, a man by the name of Ron Hansen has written a wonderful novel that uh, came out about 2016, where there's a complex story of Billy the Kid. The Billy the Kid that could wear a, a wonderful hat, and there's the Billy the Kid that killed people. How do you put those two together? Well, sometimes, Stephen, people want to do either or. Mm -hmm. What I want to do is both and. Mm -hmm. And I'm a both and historian. And that's why I deal with a bifurcated Billy. 
He's both and. Sometimes in his life, he was a person you wanted to ride the river with. You enjoyed being around him. He had a wonderful sense of humor. People loved him. But on the other hand, he could go crazy and he could murder people with really not much context for doing so. And he wanted to run the world because he had a gun and you're going to listen to him. Well, that's the negative side. And I wanted people to see, not only in his own life, I wanted to see how historians over time have kind of changed their points of view. We call it presentism, Steve, mm -hmm. where you take present day values and you sometimes superimpose them on the past. We need to be careful about that. But we need to realize we are writing in 2022. We're going to take now. How could you say Ukraine without having some kind of idea of what happened in the last two or three days being applied to anything you wrote about Ukraine in the past? Well, something happened last night and we're, we're doing, we're superimposing. Mm -hmm. I wanted this book to have people to be reflective about a person like Billy the Kid and on history generally. We talk about context a lot when it comes to the people that as historians we're, we're doing research on or that we're writing about or whose stories we're interested in, but we ourselves as historians exist in our own context as well. I think that's a good point for people to, to think about and be very cognizant of. Yes, yes, I agree very much. And then finally, I always like to get a preview of what my guests are working on next. Uh, I know that you've been very productive in the last couple of years. What have you been working on uh, since this book came out? What might be coming up next for you? I, my wife always accuses me, uh, because my father had very accented English, she quotes these words from my father, get her done, get her done. <laughs> so I always hear that in the back of my mind. That's really not coming from historians and from uh, 40 years of teaching history and with a PhD. Uh, I, I, I guess maybe I want to still compete that that little guy from out there in the sheep ranch wanted to compete with the cowboys and with the other academics who came from the Ivy League and from from the Big Ten and so on. And so I, I figured one of the ways I could do it would to be out-publish them. So I, I guess early on I tried to be very prolific. So I, I have about four books uh, ready to go. One has been accepted at the University of New Mexico. I mentioned a collection of my essays. I finished the four, three to four hundred page literary history of the Pacific Northwest, which is about uh, novelists and historians. I finished a very brief ranch memoir about growing up on that sheep ranch. It's called Boyhood Among the Woolies, and I'm looking for a publisher on that. So those three books are uh, one is accepted, the other two are looking for publishers. And they're all they all it sounds like are about the American West. So uh... they are about. So I'm doing this essay comparing Billy the Kid and the New Zealander. So yeah. that sort of makes me thinking about across the Pacific, too. Well, when all those books come out, maybe we can have you on and talk about all three back on the show. How's that sound? Uh, maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for calling me. Yes. Dr. Uh, Richard Edelaine is a professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico and is the author of many, many books and articles on the American West. And his new book is Thunder in the West, The Life and Legends of Billy the Kid, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2020. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dick. It was a pleasure talking to you.